is uh, Joey Sedlock. I am a, a member here at Salt Community Church, and then of course it is it is my pleasure to uh, to have this recorded on, on a beautiful Sunday or Saturday morning, rather. It used to these these things happen on Sundays, uh, and be able to have this in our homes for uh, for our brothers and our sisters that are that are in quarantine and kind of making it through this time together. I know a lot of extroverts are particularly struggling. Right now, us introverts, we've kind of been training for this our whole lives, and so uh, we're going to get through this together. And again, I am excited to continue our series here that we're going through. It's going to take up the entire year of 2020, our our crushed head and bruised head uh, series, where we are taking a look at all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and seeing how how all of Scripture points us to Jesus, how all of Scripture points us to God's redemptive plan. As, as it unfolds, as he interacts with man and man's failures, and he continually is faithful to his people. And, uh, and this week we're going to be in 1 Samuel. We're going to be covering 1 Samuel uh, chapters 8 through 16. 1 Samuel chapters 8 through 16. And what that's going to do is that that's going to take us into the era after the judges, uh, which we'll talk about more here in a little bit, uh, out of the era of judges, into the era of, of a king where Israel wants a king and God and God gives them a king, King Saul, which which doesn't work out too well, but then uh, that leads us to King David and to really understand and appreciate uh, King David in, in the very, very beginning of his rule, we need to go through King Saul. And so that's what we're going to be moving through today. Let's go ahead and pray and get started. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we are thankful, Lord. We're thankful for uh, the redemptive story that you have already told from Genesis into 1 Samuel, but Lord, we know the rest of the story from Samuel to Revelation, and Lord, we are, we are thankful. We're thankful for pointing us back to yourself. Every scripture, every, uh, every character, every movement uh, throughout your people's history, Lord, you are pointing us to yourself. You're pointing us to Jesus, you are pointing us to your faithfulness. And Lord, I pray that you continue to do that today, even in our isolation, even in our, our absence of, of gathering, our absence of community, Lord, that you are still working through us, that you are still with us, and that you are still pointing us to your Son. Lord, I love you. I praise you. I pray these things in the power of the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so... In 1 Samuel, uh, which, is, which is where we're going to be today, right? In 1 Samuel, we have skipped over the era of Judges altogether. Last week, we ended with Joshua, and then we're going to begin kind of the reign of the kings. And, and, and the time of Judges was kind of a, a chaotic time. We're going to get a really good summary statement here right at the beginning. But it was, a, it was a chaotic time where most of the Judges really weren't good people. They didn't do good things. But right at the beginning of 1 Samuel, we have this woman named Hannah. And this is in chapter 2. And I didn't tell you to turn there. I'm just going to breeze over this real quick. And we have this woman named Hannah. Now, Hannah was barren. She couldn't have kids. She couldn't conceive. Uh, and then the Lord opens her womb. The Lord allows her to conceive. And in a response, she, she lets out this prayer in chapter 2. And in this prayer, she, she really highlights three things, and that is God opposes the proud and he exalts the humble. That despite human evil, God is still at work and that God will raise up a messianic king. He will raise up a savior king at some point in the future, and she gives birth. Now, who she gives birth to is Samuel, right? That's the prophet Samuel. That's how he's introduced to us, and, and that's First book of Samuel is kind of about Samuel, right? And so we fast forward eight chapters. Samuel is a prophet. He's running his gun. He's a man of God. He's doing what he's supposed to do. And we have this interaction beginning in uh, verse one of chapter eight. It says, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Verse three, pay attention. Yet his sons did not walk in, in his ways, but turned aside after game. They took bribes and perverted justice. justice. And that's that summary statement that we get for kind of the whole era of judges. 
right, is, is that the judges took bribes, they turned aside, they perverted justice. And so Israel gathers together, and all the elders of Israel, they gather together, and, and they have something to say to Saul, and, and at the end of the day, they're just like, hey man, um, like your sons are wicked, they don't do what you did. As a matter of fact, uh, not a lot of people did set for us a king. We want a king. And in, and in verse 5, uh, we have now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And it says that this displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And what we find is something kind of unexpected. Samuel takes this, this, uh, this concern to God as he is a man of God, he is a prophet. He takes this concern to God and he tells him, hey, uh, the people, they want a king. And the Lord says something really interesting in verse 7. It says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people, all that they say to you, for they have rejected, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And according to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them about of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me, serving other gods, so they also do to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And so Samuel takes these concerns to God, and God says, give them what they want. And Samuel, don't take this personally. They're not rejecting you. They are rejecting me. And it's not the idea that Israel wants a king or, or, or has a desire to have a king-like ruler that is, that is the issue. Because even back in Deuteronomy, way before all this was written, God told Moses that one day Israel would have a king. In, in Deuteronomy 17, I'm not going to read that for you. I'm going to kind of go through what it says. But it, this king that God knew that God was going to set over Israel, it had a few requirements, a few like uh, personality traits of, of what uh, a king would be. And the very first one is that the king would be chosen by God. But here, the king is, is being chosen by the people. So God is not ready to set a king over Israel at this point, but they're requesting one. Not only that, but God said that the king would be an Israelite, not a foreigner, that he would not hoard uh, wealth and status symbols like gold and silver and horses, that he would not cause the people to go back to Egypt, to go back into slavery, that he would not have multiple wives, that he would, that he would hand write a copy of the law that was approved by the Levitical priest and that he would read it every day so that he would not be raised up above his brothers and he would always know whose authority and he operates on it. This is the king that, that the Lord wants to provide, right? And this is a God-fearing, humble, servant king that the Lord already said he would raise up. But the people here, they're saying we want the king and we want Samuel to choose this king and we want this king to rule over us. We want to be like the other nations. And God says, this is a rejection of me. And, and you might be thinking, well, it's not a rejection of God. To reject God is to say, I don't want anything to do with you. Be gone. And that's one kind of rejection of God. But there's two ways to reject God. And the other one is what they're doing here. And that is saying, I want God plus something else. I want what I want, and I want God as a Satan net, just in case my plans don't work out. And so what they're doing is they're requesting another source of security, another source of joy, and this is what God calls a just outright rejection of him. It's not a partial acceptance, it's an outright rejection. And what's interesting, what really landed on me when, when I started studying this a few weeks ago is kind of what's going on in our culture right now. Right? The fact that a lot of us have a lot of things taken from us. Uh, it, maybe it's your paycheck, maybe it's reduced, maybe it's gone together, maybe it'll be short-lived. Maybe your social life has kind of been taken from you, maybe, maybe you feel like your personal freedom has been restricted or taken from you, maybe your community has been taken from you. And it kind of begs the question, were those things your plan A? Were those things that you were putting in place that you desired more than you desired God? Or were you desiring God plus these other things for your happiness? 
Where is God at on your list of things that you desire? Now that you've been stripped of a lot of these really crucial things that people don't usually look down on you for wanting, like nobody's going to look down on you for wanting unity and a paycheck and, 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 and those things, but where's God at on that list? Is he number one? Do you desire him above all those things? Because what first Samuel has for is that if you don't, that is a rejection of God. It's an outright rejection. And so God tells Samuel, warn them first. Tell them what a king will do. So that's what Samuel does. Samuel comes to the people and he says, listen guys, I don't think you know what a king will do. Let me lay that out for you. First, he will, and listen to the word take through through verses uh, 10 through 18. Listen to the word take over and over again. It, and uh, he begins, he says, he will take your sons and he will appoint them to his chariots. He will take your daughters to be his, per, uh, his perfumers and his cooks and his bakers. He will take the best of your fields and his vineyards and he will give it to his officers. He will take a tenth of your grain. He will take your male servants. He will take your female servants. And he will take the best of your men and the best of your donkeys, and they will, and he will put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and he will make you slaves. And on that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And so it's a pretty stout warning, right? He's going to take all these things from you, all these things that you are hoping to gain from a king. The king is actually going to take them from you. And the timeless wisdom in there is that anything that you desire more than God will not provide what you hope to gain from it. It will only take that thing from you, if not more. And that's what, that's what he's trying to tell them. You want this. You want this too badly. You're willing to sacrifice too much to have it. And you're going to lose everything you hope to gain. And the very first requirement of a king, according to Deuteronomy, is that God will choose it in the very last line of verse 18 that says, this king that you have chosen for yourself. Whoever they choose already is not going to meet the requirements of the king that Yahweh would have put over them. Israel's response is, no. But there shall be a king over us that we may be like the other nations. I'm down here in verse 20. That our king may judge us, may go out before us, and may fight our battles. And the Lord tells Samuel, obey the voice, find him king. What's interesting is, is the judge to, to rule over them, uh, the desire for a king to go out before them, the desire for a king to fight their battles, and all things that the Lord had already promised Israel he would do. He would be their king. He would rule over them. He would go out before them. He would fight their battles. As a matter of fact, if we remember back to Genesis in the wilderness, at one point, God tells them, all you have to do is be still and be quiet, and I'll take care of the rest. And he said, no, we want a king to do those things. We reject the Lord as our king. We want a king that we can see, that we can control, that we can protest against, that we can, that we can, hey, if we get enough of us, we can kick that dude out of the castle. If that's what we need to do, we want that. And so the Lord says, obey the voice, give him a king. And this reminds me of Paul teaching in Romans 1, where it says that the Lord turned uh, his people over to their sins, to their unnatural desires, their unnatural sins. And, and that was not a good thing. That was not the Lord saying, hey, you got all the freedom what you want, but it was in hope, of course, in, in planning that you would see the futility, the emptiness of your sin, and that you would return back to him. So he says, they want a king that bad, give him a king. And this is where our journey kind of through Saul, before we get to King David, begins, because uh, Samuel sees Saul, he tells everybody, go back to their own city. All the men go back to their own city. We're going to choose us a king. That's what we're going to do now. And they choose Saul. And Saul is, is kind of this tall, dark, and handsome dude, right? He's a very kingly looking guy. It says that he's at least a head taller than anybody else in Israel. So he's a tall dude. He, he looks like a warrior. He's good looking. And, and, and they say, okay, we're, we're going to choose this dude 
as king. But before we get there, we get this really quirky story where Saul kind of seems to be this, this passive, uh, maybe a little bit um, dumb fellow. Uh, I can't really think of a, of a nicer way to say that because the first thing we see that Saul doing is he's chasing donkeys all over the land. He, his father's donkeys cannot be located. He's chasing them, and these donkeys, who are not the most crafty creatures in the world, they keep eluding him. And, and during this time when he's chasing the donkeys, his servant says, hey, actually, we're pretty close to a seer, who, that's a prophet, S-E-E-R, that's what it says in, in Scripture, that's a, that's a prophet, and they're talking about the prophet Samuel, right? And they say, hey, there's this prophet, there's this man of God, maybe we should go and consult him. And Saul is really passive and not and hesitant to do this. And he's just like, all right, that's, that's a good idea. We'll go do that. And so his servant is kind of leading him, which, which kind of speaks a little bit about his leadership that we're going to see unfold. And so they go and they talk, uh, they talk to Samuel. And Samuel says, hey, actually, the Lord told me that somebody was coming and I should anoint them as a prince. The scripture says prince. Over Israel, we're like, hold on. I thought, I thought we were talking about a king, and, and, and we are. And, and I think this is this is Yahweh being maybe a little bit funny because He says, no, no, no. I'm the, I am the king, whether whether you want that or not. I'm going to anoint you as, as prince because the Hebrews had a word for king. That's just not the word used here in, in nine uh, verse in chapter nine verse sixteen. And so He anoints Saul as king and, and, and says, Hey, by the way, if your donkeys have been found, go back home. So he does. And he tells his dad, hey, I was out there looking for the donkeys, and, and, and now I'm back. I heard that they were found in this and the other. And doesn't tell his dad that he was just anointed king over Israel. Doesn't mention it. Maybe it's not a big deal. I don't know. And we fast forward a little bit, and, and now we have Saul at his, his public anointing, right? Like privately, uh, he's already been anointed. It was it was maybe a little bit awkward, and and, and now the, the public anointing is going to be much more awkward because Samuel comes out and says, "Hey, guess what? I found a king for us. His name is Saul, and he is." And they can't find him. They they don't know where he is, and it turns out that he's hiding in the baggage. That's what Holy Scripture says. He's hiding in the baggage, so he pops out of the suitcases basically, and he's like, "Oh, here I am." And, and that's, that's how we get introduced to Saul as king. And, and Israel's response is, long live the king. There that man is. Let's go. And I didn't know if I was going to say this, but the last line of that particular passage, it says that there were some worthless fellows who were being a little bit cynical, a little bit critical, and they asked the question, is this the man who's going to save us? And, and I have to be honest. If I was there on that day, that worthless fellow, that would be describing me. Because if I was there to meet the new king of all of Israel, and it's the dude hiding the luggage, I have questions. I'm like, really? Is, is that guy king? Because if that guy's king, I think maybe I could be king. I think maybe I should throw my name in the hat because I can hide in luggage too. And if that's what it takes to be king, then, then I'm kind of game for that. But despite all the awkwardness, despite the quirkiness, despite the character flaws that we can kind of already see beginning in Saul, everything actually starts out pretty well. Saul goes out, he goes to battle, that's what the people wanted. He wins battles, he, he gives the credit to the Lord, and actually after he goes out and he, and he defeats some enemies of Israel, it says that the kingdom of Israel is renewed. And it's, it's looking like for the first year or so that this is actually going to work out. But unfortunately, that's pretty short-lived. Unfortunately, Saul's heart starts to be revealed. Though he looks like the kingly type, his heart is not a heart after God. And what we're going to see is, is that's going to begin to unfold. In chapter, in chapter 13... We see that Israel is in these kind of skirmishes, these kind of small battles with the Philistines. And, and, uh, and Saul is kind of a warrior king. He's out there waging war and going to battle. And, and, and this garrison for the Philistines gets defeated. But Saul's not actually there. Jonathan, his son, defeats him. Saul is actually in a place called Gilgal. Gilgal is actually where he was anointed as king. 
and, and he's back there, and he's waiting on Samuel to get there. But there's a really interesting phrase that, that keys into how things are going. In chapter verse, uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 13, verse 7, it says, And some of the Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And the, letter, the very last sentence there, Saul was at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. And so at this point, for whatever reason, uh, things, have, things have unfolded to a point where the people who are following Saul, and Saul is not with his people on the front lines, he's kind of back in the city waiting to make a sacrifice, waiting for Samuel to come and make a sacrifice. It says that everybody that's following him, everything that everybody that is around him, they're trembling. His leadership is not producing confidence. His leadership is not producing passion. His leadership is producing fear. And people are scared. And so he grows tired of waiting for Samuel to show up and make the sacrifice, as that's Samuel's job. The, the king is not a priest. The priest is not a king. And so he, he, he gets tired of waiting, so he just makes the sacrifice himself. And, and just like a well-timed sitcom, as soon as he does the thing that everybody knows he's not supposed to do, Samuel shows up and he says, what have you done? You have acted foolishly. And, and Saul begins to make all these excuses. He's like, well, hey, listen, uh, the people were starting to scatter. Uh, I was getting a little bit nervous. You were late. You were supposed to be here before you were here, and you weren't here, so look, I did it. I made the sacrifice. And Samuel's response to that is that you're a fool. You have established, uh, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has already sought a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. And so he tells Saul, your kingdom will not continue. You are not obedient. You are not who the Lord has. As a matter of fact, the Lord already has somebody else on that. It's a pretty, pretty stout response. And what we see continue past chapter 13 is things continue to fall apart for Saul. He continues to make poor decisions. He continues, his leadership continues to produce men under him who break the laws of the Lord, who do not, who do not adhere and fight for the, for the general well-being uh, of the kingdom of God. And as we see, Saul is actually starting to build the kingdom of Saul. He's not a man after God's own heart. He's a man after his own heart. He continues to fight Israel's enemies, and he continues to have you know, some, some kind of spotty success on the battlefield, which is, again, that's what Israel wanted. They wanted King to go out and fight and win battles for us, but his heart, his heart is not aligned with Deuteronomy. His heart is not aligned with, with what the Lord has pictured for people, the Lord has for his people. And in chapter 15, we're going to move a little bit slower through this chapter. Uh, in chapter 15, it all falls apart. It's all gone. Samuel lays open Saul's heart for us, and, and Scripture puts it full-on display for us to see. And what we see is while Saul is out defeating and, and fighting all of Israel's enemies, chapter 15 starts with this. And Samuel says to Saul, Thus the Lord of hosts, thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek, I've noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing him on, uh, on the way when he came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. I bet that land is really heavy on us in the U.S. in 2020. Right? God is saying, I remember what Amalek did, what the Amalekites did. I remember what they did to my people when I was bringing them out of Egypt. And what they did was they raided Israel, who was, who was defenseless, who was not a people prone to fighting. They were slaves who had just been 
just been released from slavery, and they raided Israel, they plundered Israel, they stole from Israel, they killed God's people. And the Lord says, I remember that. Now I want you to go, and I want you to kill every single one of them. Not just the men who are fighting in the military, but the women. Not just the children, but the infants. Not just the ox, but the sheep. Not just the camel, but the donkey. And I bet that one hands on us. Really, really heavy. And I could just breeze through this and not mention it, but I, but I like the fact that throughout this series, we, we've tried to grapple with some of these more challenging uh, verses. And, and what we have here is, is an instance of the Lord that people have spent their entire lives studying and trying to explain. The entire volumes have been written, and I don't pretend like I'm going to sum this up in the next six minutes and you just be completely okay with it. But I do want to point out a couple of things that can help us grapple with this if this lands on your heart really heavy, as I know it does for some of us. And part of the reason that it lands so heavy on us is that, unfortunately, we don't take our sin as seriously as we should. Our sin is not as dark to us as it actually is to God. And so we are misguided about how we think of sin and how dark and vile that it actually is. And what happens with that is because our sin isn't that bad and because we're not that bad of people because we're not mass murderers and we're not people uh, who have committed these atrocities from history, that God's holiness is also minimized. If my sin is not that bad, then God's holiness is not all that different for me. And Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is not all that impressive. When in reality, there's a reason why Scripture calls God's mercy new every single morning. Because every single morning that we wake up, that is mercy. That is a day that we do not deserve. Because in fact, the, the reaction to the Amalekites' sin here, it is the absolute right reaction to sin from a holy God. If God really is holy, as the Bible says he is, then this is the correct, uh, this is the correct response. This is the response that makes the most sense. What is baffling is mercy and grace. That is baffling. That's a baffling response from a holy God to sinful people. Right? And, and the most baffling question in Scripture, many people want to paint it, is why do, why do bad things happen to good people? People grapple with that. But that's not the most baffling question in Scripture. The most baffling question is how can a holy God do anything but kill every sinful person? Why has he not wiped us all out by now? Why has he showed us grace and mercy? That is baffling. But in 2020, we don't we don't assume judgment and are surprised by grace. We assume grace. We assume mercy. And we call judgment unfair. We call judgment evil. And when that line of thinking comes right up against the holiness of God and His holy judgment of sin, it feels very strange to us and it feels wrong. But this is actually just. This is actually righteous. And, and another thing that I want to point out is this is a, an isolated instance of God's judgment. This is not something that is prescribed to be repeated. This happened on this day in history, and, and, and that is where it is left. It happens a few other times throughout the Old Testament, but this is not something where as a group of Christians, we can get together and be like, we don't like those people over there, or those people over there, we consider them to be an abomination. So I'm going to invoke 1 Samuel 15, and I'm going to go over there, and I'm going to destroy them. That is not commanded in Scripture in any way. This is an isolated instance of God's special pouring out of wrath on a people, on a sinful people who have rejected Him. Again, I don't pretend like that explanation is going to completely solve this for you, but it will give you a couple of tools to start working through. And so what happens right after that is we actually see the reverse. There was a people called the Kenites, and they're actually spared from this because when the Lord is bringing the people up out of Egypt, the Kenites show mercy to them. And so they're actually spared. And so we actually see the, the polar opposites. We see mercy and we see judgments based on how God and his people were treated. And so what we see next 
is what Saul did in response to what the Lord had commanded him. And starting in verse 7, he says, And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havre, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and uh, he took Agag alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, the best of the sheep and of the oxen, the fattened calves and the lambs, and all that was good. They spared all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So what we see is tit for tat, outright disobedience. God said, destroy everything. And, Sam, and, and Saul's like, okay, I will. I'll destroy all the stuff that's useless and that I don't want. I'm going to keep all the stuff that I do want. And I'm going to capture the king and I'm going to hold him. And I am actually going to be king over him. And the Lord's reaction to this, he says in verse 11, I regret that I made Saul king. For he does not follow my commandments. And we've already dealt with this in Genesis, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about it now, but we dealt with this, right? This regret here is not how you and I feel regret, but like, oh, we didn't know that was going to happen, so I wish I could go back in time and do something different. This is just an intense grief over sin. So what happens is Samuel the prophet shows up and Saul thinks that he's done nothing wrong here. Though he's outright disobeyed God, he, he thinks that he's done nothing wrong. So Samuel shows up and is just like, oh, hey, uh, you know, how's it going? And Saul's like, Samuel, man, hey, I'm really glad that you're here. Uh, listen, by the way, I don't, I don't know if you know this or not, but I did everything the Lord commanded me. And Samuel's response to Saul is just biting. In verse 14, it says, And Samuel said to Saul, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul comes to Samuel and says, Blessed be, blessed, uh, blessed by the Lord, man. I wish blessings on you. Listen, I did everything the Lord said I should do. And, and Samuel looks at him and says, Bro, you're standing in the middle of the sheep and the oxen. They're not dead. I hear them. Why do I hear sheep and oxen if you did what you were supposed to do? And listen, you need people like Samuel in your life. You need people like this who will just simply call you on it, who can see what you are blind to, who can see through the lies that you have convinced yourself of, and they will call you on your sin. And metaphorically, they will say, bro, listen, you're sitting here and you're pretending and you're attending church like everything is fine when really everything is a mess, everything is a dumpster fire, and you're wishing blessings on other people and, you're, and you are perfectly at peace with your disobedience of the Lord and you need someone to come along and say, I see the sheep. I see the oxen. How in the world can you say that you're obedient if you're standing in the middle of your disobedience? We need those people. And many of us will go through times of doubt where we don't know if our heart has really been changed by God. We don't know if we really understand the gospel. The gospel has really landed on us with the way that it should. And our response to these types of situations are really, really good indicators as to what our heart uh, or what the posture of our heart actually is. And what we see is Saul's response is to double and then triple down that he has done nothing wrong. And so Saul says, I brought them up from the Amalekites. He, he doesn't even see any issues. He's like, oh yeah, the sheep and the oxen, I brought them up from the Amalekites. I spared the best of them so that I could sacrifice them to the Lord. And Samuel responds and he just says, you are so little in your own eyes. I mean, you are nothing. And are you not the king? Are you not the head of the tribe of Israel? The Lord anointed you over Israel. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go to the boat to destruction the sinners of the Amalekites, fight against them, and until they are consumed, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil? And what 
evil and, and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And so Samuel ain't being fooled. Samuel ain't having it. He says, no, homie, you did exactly everything the Lord told you to do, and you were nothing, and the Lord gave you everything. He raised you up, and still you do nothing, the Lord says. And here, here is where we see Saul's heart. This is the real Saul. He may look like a king, but he does not have the heart of a king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission in which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag and uh, the king of, uh, of Amalek. I have devoted the Amalites uh, to destruction. But the people, the people, they took up the spoil. They took the sheep. They took the oxen. And they took the best of the things uh, that were not devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, at and obviously Saul hasn't spent very much time reading or hearing the story of Genesis because this is exactly what Adam and Eve did when they showed up and they were caught. And not just caught, but caught, caught, right? Like they could not deny it. They just started blame shifting, right? And Saul was saying, I did everything I was supposed to do, homie, but listen, these people over here, they did some weird stuff. I'm not really responsible for that. But if we're going to start pointing figures, they, they did that stuff to sacrifice to the Lord. So, I mean, really, I don't know how much of the Lord plays a role in this. Again, Samuel's not having it. He said, the Lord does not desire your sacrifices. He desires your obedience. To behave, to, to obey is better than sacrifice. And, and to listen, to listen, not to yourself, but to the Lord. To listen is better than the fat of rams and what that has for us. What, what Samuel is trying to just get into Saul is that your half-hearted obedience is still just disobedience. Your partial obedience is just disobedience. The 90% obedience that you become okay with in your life, you basically do the things that you're supposed to do are still disobedience. And, and, and in 2020, how that lands on us is, is the same message. Partial obedience is outright disobedience. And, and what Saul's going to tell him next is just outright rejection of God. And so he said, I do pretty much what I'm supposed to do. Maybe I cheat a little bit on my taxes because taxation is theft anyway. The government doesn't need my money. And, 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 and what we have is, is that is rejection of the Lord. That is not obedience. The, the, the simple relationship that you're in, whether, whether you're in this relationship with someone who is not a believer under the guise that you're going to minister to them, that's disobedience, that's, that's rejection of the Lord. You are, you are sexually active in a relationship that is not wrong to a marriage because you've experienced true love and you're in love. That's, that's disobedience, that's a rejection of the Lord, that bitterness in your heart that you know is there, that you refuse to forgive. That is disobedience, that is a rejection of the Lord, but most of us show up to church on Sunday morning anyway and, and give blessings, be perfectly at peace with our disobedience. And Saul, the, the book of Samuel, and, and what we see through Saul would serve to warn us that God is not clapping with, with joy and gratitude and excitement because you carved out an hour and a half on Sunday to attend church, or at this point, pull up a video on Facebook and watch it with your family. If that's your only act of obedience, God is not excited about that. You have rejected him. And the result of that rejection is in, is in the very last line that, that Samuel says to you. He says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And actually, there's a little bit of hope in that last line. Samuel does not tell Saul God has rejected you completely. He says that he has rejected you from being king. You're not fit to be king, Saul. But it doesn't mean that he's not fit to do anything in the kingdom of God. Saul's reaction to this is, is unfortunately just kind of more of the same. Where he says, okay, I've sinned, I've sinned against the Lord, I'm sorry, I, 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 I repent. And he tells Samuel, he says, please come back with me, because if you don't come back with me, what are the elders of my people going to think? And what we see is that despite his partial repentance, despite his, his, his partial obedience, Saul's heart is not what it needs to be. It is not after the Lord. It is still after himself. And at the end of the day, he's still 
pursuing this image of himself because he doesn't know what the people, what the elders are going to think of him if Samuel does not come back with him so that, so that he can do this religious ritual. And we don't know why, but Samuel does go back with him. Saul does save that face before his people. And then, and this is recorded, and I'm going to, I'm going to read it because it's, it's recorded in our Holy Scripture. Verse 32 of chapter 15, it says, Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag, Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. That's one of the most incredible things Scripture says. Samuel is going to be obedient where Saul wasn't. He's going to take the sword. He's going to devote to destruction what Saul tried to say. And he hacks Agag into pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Luckily for us, the story doesn't end there. The story continues. The Lord has already said that he will raise up another king. He will. He already knows who he's going to raise up. It's a man after his own heart. And so he, he, in chapter 16, he tells Samuel, the Lord tells Samuel, hey, go to Bethlehem. This is starting to sound a little bit familiar, right? Some, some, some New Testament stuff going on. Right? Go to Bethlehem and find a, uh, a son of Jesse, for I am going to appoint one of his sons as king. And, and Samuel says, well, I really can't do that because Saul already knows that there's another king out there, and if I go looking for him, he's going to kill me. And so the Lord says, look, uh, I need you to go to Bethlehem to perform a sacrifice anyway. We're going to make sure Jesse's there, and that's how we're going to get you to Bethlehem without Saul killing you. And so that's what happens. And he goes, Samuel goes, he talks to Jesse, and he tells Jesse, like, hey, um, this is kind of what I'm here for. And, and so Jesse starts parading his sons in front of Samuel. And the very first son that, uh, that Jesse brings out is uh, Elihab. Samuel looks at him and is like, oh, this dude's tall, dark, handsome, looks like a warrior. Maybe this is our king. The same exact pitfall that he, that he had with Samuel. It seems like he's going to repeat, but the Lord, the Lord speaks into that in verse 7 of chapter 16. It says, But the Lord said that Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And if we look back at, at Deuteronomy as a requirement for kings, a lot of those things are not. The man has to be six foot six. The man's got to have some tan skin. The man's got to look like a warrior. It is, it is about posture of the heart. Outward appearance never indicates a man's ability to be faithful to the Lord. And all action flows from the heart. And so the heart is what the Lord is most interested in, right? And some may like this because you're like, wow, well, I really look like a king to do this. So I prefer to, you know, to, to, for God to look at my heart. And another people are like, my heart is far more uglier than my outside appearance. We should not be looking at that. And as a, as a culture in 2020, we really value outside appearances, right? There's not pictures of your heart all over your Instagram, right? That's, that we are not out there uh, looking for boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, and wives uh, really based on heart, right? Like that's, that's not typically what we're at. Typically, there's, there's an attraction of, of an outside appearance first, and then maybe if things work out, when we get to that other stuff. But in 2020, we're still looking at outside appearances, and the Lord is like, it's not what I'm into. I'm into what is in the heart. Because despite the fact that, that we blame outward circumstances on our sin, like, oh, I did that when I was angry, or oh, he only did that because he was drunk, that the truth of the matter is, any action that has ever come out of you has come out from your heart. And the darkness and ugliness of those actions reveal a darkness and ugliness in your heart. 
so what happens is Jesse kind of parades the rest of his sons at him. He's like, okay, well, if the I have in it, here's here's a bit of that. Maybe he is it. Oh, okay, well, he's not here. Here's, here's Shema, here's that. And, and, and what happens is all of his sons go before uh, Samuel, and Samuel, the Lord tells Samuel, none of these, none of these. And so it says, uh, okay, do you have any other uh, sons? And he says, well, yeah, I got, I got David, but, but David is out watching the sheep. He's, he's the youngest. It doesn't say anything about his stature. So, so it's assumed that he's also the smallest. He's kind of the runt of the litter. And he's out there and he's doing the job nobody else wants to do. And Samuel says to Jesse, send and get him. For we will not sit down until he comes. And he sent and he brought him. And, and he describes David. Scripture describes David as now he was ruddy, had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. Now that doesn't sound like a real bad description, right? But but what those what those things mean? Ruddy means he has a he had a red cheeks or, or, or a red complexion, and he had beautiful eyes, and and he was handsome. And and these things do, do not describe a warrior king. These things do not describe someone who looks like a king. These things describe someone who's cute, right? Like David was cute. He looked like a cute little boy. He didn't look like a man. He didn't look like a leader. He didn't look like a warrior. He looked like a cute little kid. And the reaction is immediate. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. This is the king right here. And, and, and what is so striking about that is David it is absolutely ordinary. He's absolutely ordinary. But, but that's okay, because, because David is ordinary, God gets to work through him, and God gets to be the one who is extraordinary. When God uses ordinary people to accomplish his tasks, it is him that gets to be extraordinary. It is him that gets to flex, right? It's not David, who, as great as David is, right? And, and we know that David grows up and, and he gets to be this king, this man after God's own heart. And as great as David is, David's, David's extraordinary uh, leadership are merely a manifestation of an extraordinary God through an ordinary person. And this, this is the beginning of a, of a king that God has actually chosen. Right, God has chosen, so we're, we're past the first requirement uh, for, for Deuteronomy. Right, God has actually chosen David to be king. What's really interesting is, is verse thirteen. It says, "And then Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah." And you say, "Well, what's so interesting about that?" And it is after David is anointed king over all of Israel, things go back to everyday life. Samuel has more sacrifices to make, so he leaves and he goes to more cities to intercede for more people. David goes back to the field. He goes back to shepherding his sheep. We know that because if we look forward a little bit, uh, King Saul, well, uh, disposed King Saul, uh, actually requests David to come and play his harp for him, and it says that David was with the sheep. And so David went back to the sheep. Not only that, but next week we're going to talk about David and Goliath, and, and while the Philistines are out there, and Goliath is out there scaring the mess out of all the Israelites, David is with the sheep. And so David goes back, and he just goes back to being a shepherd in the pasture. And, and that's really, really weird to me because I would expect to say uh, that Samuel anoints him with oil and David begins this super elite, awesome uh, king training program where he's going to be trained up to be a king and he's going to be put in the palace. But he's not put in the palace, he's put in the pasture. And God made David a king, not in the palace. God made David a king in the pasture with the sheep. That is where David learned how to be a king. That is where David learned boldness as he protected his sheep from, from predators, from wolves, from bears, from, from whatever tried to attack his sheep. That's where David learned 
boldness. That's how David learned to be caring to the sheep who cannot do anything for themselves. And if, they, if the sheep sense too much danger, they just lay down and accept death. And David has to care for them. He has to pursue the ones who stray away, right? And this is where David learned how to protect. Not how, not how to exploit those that he is over for his own gain, but to protect, to serve. This is where David learned how to be homeless day in, day out. He is scrubbing filth from his robes. He is scrubbing sheep excrement from his robes. He learns how to be humble. And these are the characteristics that God wants in a king, someone who is bold and caring and protected, who's humble. This is where David had a lot of time to practice with that slingshot that he would need in, in, in just a little while. And all of these things are building up to, to God's main point of a king, and that is that is there is no such thing as a leader who is not a servant. Ordinary servants, that is who God makes extraordinary. That is who God has continually pushed his plan of redemption through history. That is continually who God has used and he's raised up. And purposely, he does this. Purposely, he uses the weak. Purposely, he uses those that are outcasts. Purposely, he uses the ordinary, the ordinary servants. And all of this actually does not point us to David so that we can marvel at David. All of this points us to Jesus, the ordinary and yet extraordinary king. And to be honest, if that, if that lands heavy on you, if, if the thought of, of David being prepared in, in the pasture, in the muck, to, to do the things of God, not in the palace, I don't know that it's landed on anyone as heavy as it's landed on me. And, and I say that maybe just because I've spent two weeks wrestling with this and grappling with this and going through periods of, of being frustrated about this because at the end of the day, uh, college was really exciting for me. I met the woman that I love, that I've dedicated my, my, my life to since, right? We just celebrated our eight-year wedding anniversary. We've been together for, for 12 years. I've, I've dedicated, you know, to, to casting and trying to be the best boyfriend, fiance, and husband that I could be. And, 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 and that was really exciting. And then we graduated college and we got married. And I feel like the Lord called me. Uh, to ministry, so I submitted to the call. We moved to another state, which was exciting and scary at the same time. And, and I went through seminary, and seminary was this was this amazing experience. Of it. it was not without its hardships, it was not without its dark times. It was it was an experience, and, and I got involved in the local church. And in that local church, I, I felt like I, I submitted to the call of the Lord to to plant a church, but I had no idea where. And, and I kind of got to a point where I was like. Wherever you want, Lord. He's like, good deal. Move back to Lake Charles. We're, we're going to plant a church in the Charles. So I moved back and I was like, let's go. Let's go. Let's get it. And the Lord says, great. Take this job at the bank and sit there for a while. And I'm like, no, that, that's, that's not the plan. My plan is not to go back to the metaphorical pastor, right? I worked at the bank before I went to seminary. I could have just stayed here the whole time. Why did I need to move off and, and do these things? And, and, and submit to these callings if you're going to call me back to do the same daggone thing I was doing before. Maybe I've misunderstood. Maybe I've misheard. Maybe I'm being disobedient. But what it really seems is through the Spirit of the Lord over the last two weeks is just like, nah, homie, I just have you here. And this is where I want you to be. And, and, and every time you try to take a route to go and pivot, and it doesn't really work out. And, and, and this scripture kind of just spoke to me. And I know I'm kind of still on my guest a little bit, but the Spirit is kind of. Uh, spoke to me through this sermon and just said, it doesn't mean that the Lord's not working on you. It doesn't mean that the Lord is not preparing and preparing your heart day in and day out just because you're not in the palace. And so I would, I would encourage all of us who, who maybe feel like that, who feel like we're back out in the pasture. The pasture is where the Lord prepares kings. Embrace where you are. See what the Lord is doing. And, and like I said, roughly, this is, this is not where the story ends, right? And luckily, David and the story of David is, is not, which really, we'll see how the story of David unfolds, the story of David 
unfolds. But, but luckily, this is not the end of the story. This is not a story that just points back to David. This is a story that, that points us to Jesus. And though in the story we are not David, we are not Israel, we are not Samuel, we are not Saul, right? Saul is Saul, Samuel is Samuel, David is David, Israel is Israel. We read this story and we identify with different aspects of it and we pull from its wisdom into 2020. And we learn from it, and what we see is, is as Israel rejected God, so too we reject God. As we want things that are in addition to God, we want security and happiness and joy that is not found in God. And Samuel tells us that's a rejection of him. And though we are like Saul, and that we think that our partial obedience will, will get us through, and that we can just make peace with that, and that, and that God's okay with us devoting just a couple hours a week with him, that, that is actually also just a rejection of God and that our arrogance and our disobedience and our foolishness are dark and they are deserving of death. Despite those things, God still raises up a king for us. As he raised up David for Israel all those days ago, God has used David to continue his plan to raise up a king for us, King Jesus, a king who is the extraordinary, ordinary king, right? He is another king from Bethlehem. God didn't raise up just one. He spends most of his life, his life in obscurity. He, he, he's from Nazareth, which is not good. You did not want to buy property or build houses in Nazareth. That was not a good place to be. It was just a podunk town. And normally I would name a town around here that is podunk, and I'm going to refrain. He was born in the manger. He was not born in the palace. He had, he had a blue-collar job. He was not a priest or anything like that, though he was, he was the priest of priests. He was the king of kings, you know. Uh, he, he, he was a carpenter in, in Isaiah, and I'm guessing Isaiah and Jesus have worked this out since then, but Isaiah says that the man was ugly. And he was a humble servant. He came and he said, I, I did not come to be served, I came to serve. He is everything God had promised that he would raise up a king to be, and he's actually so much more. He is the king of kings, and he was made man. And what he would do through being ordinary, through being man, is something extraordinary, is that he would save us, not from the Philistines, not from the Romans, but from our sins from death, from the penalty that sin raises for us, from, from a similar destruction that the Amalekites experienced. And so what we, what we see from that and what I would urge us to do from that is take a look at, at what aspects of this story uh, resonate in your life, right? And, and, and lay down your disobedience, lay down your rebellion, and, and embrace the ordinary. Embrace the fact that, that not everybody is this, has this, this chosen one nature, that in fact, we are all ordinary. We are ordinary servants, and that's all that we should strive to be so that God is all the more ex extraordinary, right? Be humble, serve, and what we, what we all need to do as we embrace that is cry out to the extraordinary Savior King, Cry out to Jesus as he was the one who died on the cross in your place. He is the one who bridged that gap between you and God. And he is our only hope in anything else that we seek outside of King Jesus will ultimately rob us of everything that we have. Cling to King Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you today and, and we are thankful for the, for the story of Samuel. Lord. We're thankful for its, its stark warnings. And Lord, we are, we are thankful that, that though uh, we are not some, some chosen character in the story, the story is about you. We can see reflections of our character in it. And, and as you continually point us away from ourselves, away from self-destruction, and towards you, towards who you are, and towards, Lord, your Son, King Jesus, the only 
righteous king. And Lord, we're thankful for, for your sacrifice. We're thankful for, for pursuing us, though we don't deserve it. And I pray that, that your grace to us every day continues to baffle us. Lord, I love you. Lord, I praise you. Lord, I pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.